Good morning, church. And uh, this is today's uh, scripture reading, uh, Revelation 19, 6 to 21. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the row of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, like this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many um, diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will treat it, treat the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings and flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of the horses and their riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their, uh, with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, 
that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Revelation 20, verse one to 10. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into a, the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended and after he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had uh, deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and suffer where the beast and the false prophets were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Amen. And this is the today's scripture. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Linda, for reading that for us. It's, uh, let me pull up the slideshow as well. There we go. All right. And so as we get started today, let me just remind you that we will have a question and answer time after the sermon. Um, and if you have questions, you can send them into Colin today, not less. Colin will be leading the Q&A time after the sermon. Um, you can send them in via Zoom chat to Colin if you have questions. And it's been, I don't know about you, it's been a hard week for me and I think for most people in Hong Kong, hasn't it? Like with all the COVID updates coming in the past couple of weeks, I've just found it really hard to focus while I've been working. 
just wondering like, what's the next update? When is it coming? What's it gonna say? And, and my guess is I'm not alone. My guess is that many of us have been distracted by the things that have been going on and found it hard to focus when we're trying to sit down and get stuff done. And if you were here with us last week, we looked at Revelation 17 and this great prostitute of the book of Revelation. We said that this prostitute is the things of the world that try to use their beauty and their attractiveness and their allure to draw us away from God. So it could be the economic system that promises us prosperity and luxury if we'll just play by the world's rules instead of God's. It could be the arts and culture that promise us beauty and entertainment, but they often package, up, package it in a way that draws us towards sexual immorality. It could be industry that promises to make us lots of goods that makes our lives easier and more enjoyable, but then they produce these things using slave labor. And we talked about how, regardless of the, the packaging or the form that she comes in, this prostitute, the system of the world makes all these great promises that it can give us the life we really want. But the problem is that in the end, all these promises are lies. And the world and its systems can never give us the deep and lasting satisfaction that our hearts crave and long for. And when we look at times like the one we're going through right now, you know what makes times like this so hard? It's that the prostitutes' empty promises are being revealed for the lies they really are. When things like COVID happen, all that shiny gloss is removed and we can finally see the prostitute for what she really is, that she's a lie. The promise of industry making our lives more comfortable really loses its, its glamour when the delivery men are stopped at the border and we're all stuck inside apartments the size of shoeboxes where we can't use any of the cool stuff we have anyway. The promise of commerce making our lives better loses its allure when we're being laid off from our work and we're losing our income and those of us who still are earning money don't have anything to spend it on anyway, right? The promise of entertainment making our lives better just sort of grows old really quickly when all we can do with our free time is watch TV and play video games and we're sick and tired of it and we really are desperate to do anything else with our free time. This time is hard because the prostitute that we so often look to as our source of life is being shown to us with all her warts and scabs. And for the people who have nowhere else to turn, seeing that the prostitute is, is a lie actually leaves them without hope and leaves them trapped in fear, believing they can't ever truly fully live again until things get back to normal. And I'm guessing if we're being honest, all of us feel that way to a certain extent, that, that we're afraid, that we're concerned about where our hope is gone, that we can't truly live again until things get back to normal. And you know why we feel that way? It's because like we said last week, the prostitute is so good at what she does. She knows how to draw us in with her promises. Even if we know better, even if we know that true life is actually found in Jesus, we're constantly drawn back to the world and its ways and the lies that it tells us about being able to find true life there. But if we're Christians, the book of Revelation is written to prepare us for times just like the ones we're going through right now. Did you know that? Like Revelation is written so that when the prostitutes' lies are exposed, we won't be people who turn to anxiety and hopelessness. It's written so instead these moments can actually be moments of hope for us. 
And how can this be a moment of hope? Well, because when we see the world and its system unraveling, it reminds us that we serve a God who's overcome this world. It, it reminds us that we have a God who one day is going to unravel all the broken systems of this world completely so that he can replace them with a new creation where everything will be the way it's meant to be forever. And in times like what we're going through right now, we get just this tiny taste of what it's like for the world systems to unravel. And that can deeper our, deepen our hunger and thirst for the day when God finally comes and makes all things right. And that's not to discount the real struggle that so many of us are facing right now, but hopefully it can give us this hope and perspective that lets us see beyond today, especially during a time when that's so hard. And the book of Revelation tells us all about this coming day where God is finally once and for all going to set all things right. And we're going to get there next week. But before we get to that point where God's new creation can finally be established once and for all, where we'll live in joy and security forever with no more weeping and no more tears and no more fear and anxiety. Like, doesn't that sound great after these past few weeks? No more weeping, no more tears, no more fear and anxiety. That's what the future holds. But before we get there, the brokenness of this world still needs to be dealt with. And today's passage deals with the brokenness of the world so that next week we can finally see that blessing that God has for us. And so we're going to look at today's passage in three different scenes. And in each scene, we're going to see what God is doing in the world, what that means for us, and how we're called to live today in light of that. And what we'll see today is that knowing God's future gives us hope today. Knowing God's future gives us hope today. And we're going to look at a wedding, a millennium, and a war. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are God, that you are in control, that no matter how crazy and chaotic things seem in our world, that you are on the throne. And so we can trust in you and we can have peace even in hard times. And I pray that you'd be working in our hearts to give us peace today, despite the difficulty of this season that we're in the middle of. Teach us to trust in you and love you and be people of hope and joy, regardless of our circumstances. In Jesus' name, amen. And our first scene that we're going to look at today is a wedding. Now, if you've been with us as we've gone through Revelation, I want you to remember where we are in the story. Babylon, the great city of the world, the prostitute, she's been trying to use her beauty and her allure and her attraction to draw people away from God. And then at the end of last week's passage, we saw that she was overthrown by her own friends and allies. And why? Why is Babylon destroyed? Well, it's because the broken systems of the world need to be thrown down and undone to make space for something better. It's like, imagine if you lived in this little shack, you got four pieces of wood stuck into the ground and some sheet metal just wrapped around it and over the top to keep out wind and rain. And someone comes and says, I want to build you a house, a palace where you can live in luxury. But before I can give you this palace, I need to tear down the shack to make space for the better thing to come. That's what's happening when we get to the end of the book of Revelation. The woman, the prostitute, Babylon is destroyed because God has bigger and better plans for our world. God's plans aren't for a transactional, merely physical relationship like the prostitute offers. No, God's plans are for a wedding. 
And if you look back through the biblical story, you can see hints of this actually all along the way. Throughout the Bible, God has been relating to his people through covenants. A covenant is a, a deeply personal, but also legally binding agreement. It comes from a place of love, really deep love. And the legal side of it doesn't cheapen or undermine the sincerity of the love. It actually deepens it. The classic example of this on a human level is marriage, where you make a legal commitment to stay in love with one another and deepen your love for one another throughout the years. And actually, the legal element of it strengthens the loving side of it. And throughout the Bible, God makes covenant promises to his people over and over and over again. And, and there are different secondary elements that come into different covenants. But the main idea that runs through every covenant of the Bible, and that's explicitly stated again and again, is this. I will be your God and you shall be my people. God is essentially making marriage promises to his people throughout the Bible. And yet there's a problem. The problem is that again and again and again, God's people are unfaithful to him. God is patient. He is committed. He is faithful. And his people are constantly abandoning him at the altar. And yet the God of the Bible is a God who keeps his promises. He's worked in and through history in such a way that in the end, there will be a wedding ceremony. And it will be a celebration that will last throughout eternity, where Jesus and the church are married once and for all. God and his people be together forever in this everlasting covenant relationship. But how is that possible? Like, I don't know about you, but I know that I definitely constantly fall short of living in a way that seems anywhere near worthy of God. But look at chapter 19, verses 6 through 8. The wedding is coming, and the bride, that's the church, is wearing, in verse 8, it says, fine linen, bright and pure. Now, I know in Chinese weddings, the bride typically wears red, but in Western cultures, it's traditional for women to wear white on their wedding day as a symbol of purity. The idea is that the spotlessness of my outfit symbolizes the spotlessness of my character and the way that I've saved myself for my husband. And if you know anything about the story of the Bible or just about your own heart, you know that none of us has lived in a way where we deserve to stand before God in, out, in an outfit that spotless. All of us have fallen short of being worthy of him. So how can we wear that outfit? Well, look what it says in verse 8. It said it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. It was granted to her. It's telling us that God steps in and makes a way for us to have blessing and honor that we don't deserve. Every step of the way, God is stepping in. He's rescuing. He's preserving. He's saving his people so that one day you and I can be with him forever. We can live out this amazing promise and the blessing that comes with it. I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the future reality that awaits every Christian in the world. And if that future reality is the future reality of everyone who trusts in Jesus, that we will live as his spouse in this deeply personal, loving, and yet legally binding relationship forever. What does that mean for us in the midst of this difficult time of COVID? Well, the first thing it means is that you're not alone. I know that for so many of us, it's, it's just a lonely time. I don't know about you. I've found that we're limited in our ability to meet up with friends and see people we care about. 
Some of us are stuck in a different country from our spouse or our kids. It's so easy to feel lonely right now. But no matter how hard it feels during this time, you are not alone. If you're a Christian, you have a God who loves you like a spouse, who's with you right now and will be for eternity. And I know that doesn't always feel real. It, it often feels far more real that our, our spouse and our kids are in another country and that our friends are other places and that we don't know when we're going to be able to see the people we care about again. But a huge part of our growth as Christians, our spiritual growth, is just reminding ourselves over and over and over again of things we know are true, but don't feel are true. And keeping on reminding ourselves of them again and, get, and again until we start to feel like they're true. And the truth is, if you are a Christian, you are not alone, even in the midst of this difficult time. The second thing this means is that if you trust in Jesus, then joy and celebration, not despair, always have the last word in your life. Like, look how the story ends. It's not a funeral. It's a wedding. Eternity is a party. It's like a rom-com where you knew from the start that the couple was destined to be together, but trial after trial come up that keeps them apart. And now finally, they've made it through everything and they can be together and live happily ever after. That's what eternity holds for you. And so if that's what's true of us, how do we live in light of that? Well, we live with joy and hope because we know what's most true of us. So we keep our perspective set on that rather than all the craziness and the mayhem that's happening today that tries to take our eyes off of that reality. And second, we live as a pure and faithful spouse. You know, I mentioned that us being able to stand before God in these wedding clothes symbolizing purity, it's a gift from him. But there's also another side to it. Look at the end of verse eight. It says, the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So there's this tension here that God grants us to wear these clothes. It's a gift from him. But then these clothes are our good works. They're things that we have done. So how does that work? Well, because God saves us, and when he does, he transforms us. He sends us the Holy Spirit to transform us from the inside out. He actually turns us into the type of people who do good deeds, genuine good deeds from the heart. It's not that we do good deeds so we can earn God's love through them. No, it's that because God already loves us, he turns us into people who do good deeds. So we live as people who remain faithful to Jesus no matter what we face in life. We love others generously and sacrificially. We bear witness to Jesus and share the good news about him with the world around us. And we do these things not so that we can be good enough and God can love us. No, we do them because God has already showed us this incredible love and generosity. Knowing that this wedding is coming reshapes the way that we live today by turning us into people of hope and joy and obedience. So that's our first scene, a wedding, and how it helps us to live well. Our second scene that we see at the start of chapter 20 is a millennium. Sorry, hit the wrong button. And the millennium, I know when it comes to, to figuring out how to understand different books of the Bible, Revelation is probably right at the top of the list of most difficult, the one with the most disagreement and, and fighting over what it actually means. And out of the entire book of Revelation, chapter 20 in this millennium is probably one of those passages that people struggle most to agree on. So I'm going to unpack 
what's happening here or what I think is happening here. But before I do that, I'm just going to give you a really brief overview of different positions people take on this passage. And I'm going to make a couple of comments on them, and then I'll unpack what I think is actually happening here. So there are three main views people take on the millennium. And within these views, there's lots of variety. So there's lots of room for, for nuance within these. But basically, each of them is named based on when they believe this millennium happens in relation to Jesus' second coming. So there's premillennials. They say Jesus will return before or pre this millennium in chapter 20. And this millennium will be a time of Jesus reigning on the earth with his people once the, the suffering and the tribulation we've been looking at so far in Revelation is finished. So in the premillennial view, it's really bad. And then Jesus comes back and then it gets really good. Okay. The postmillennial view believes that Jesus will return after or post the millennium. So there's this time of tribulation we've been looking at where it's really bad. And then something happens and the millennium starts and things get gradually better and better and better until the day when Jesus finally comes back. The third view is called amillennial. And in this view, the millennium is not a literal thousand years. It's symbolic for the time between Jesus' life on earth and Jesus' second coming, which fits with all the symbolic numbers we've seen throughout Revelation. And in the amillennial view, there's a tension happening that's not necessarily there in the other two views. Because in the amillennial view, the, the millennium, this time of Jesus ruling and reigning with his people, actually happens in heaven at the same time as this tribulation we've been looking at throughout Revelation is happening on earth. So in this view, God's kingdom is advancing. Good and exciting things are happening in the world. Jesus is ruling and reigning. But as God's kingdom expands, Satan and his forces on earth oppose it more and more aggressively. So people are being saved. The gospel is being preached. But at the same time, Christians are suffering for their faith. The good and bad are mixed all together at the same time. And then Jesus comes back and makes things perfect forever. Now, a couple of comments on these three views. First, this passage in Revelation 20 is the only place in the Bible that explicitly mentions a thousand-year reign of Jesus which means there's, this is probably an area where it's good not to be too intense about trying to prove we're right and everyone else is wrong. Like each of these three views has been held by really great theologians throughout history. And it's okay for Christians to hold any of these three views. So if you disagree with me and you see this passage differently than I do, that's okay. The second thing is that actually, while these views have lots of variety and differences within them, they agree on the most important main fundamental thing, and that is that God wins. Like at the end of the day, all of these three views agree that in the end, God wins. And in the end, if my view is wrong and someone else is right, we can still celebrate because Jesus has still won, and that's far more important than me being right. Okay, the third thing is that God didn't tell us about the millennium so we can fight over when and how it's going to happen. He told us about the millennium so that we can live as overcomers today. Like God didn't put this passage in the Bible so that we can put together complex charts and fight among ourselves about who's right. He put this in the Bible so that no matter what we face in life, we can stay faithful to Jesus. So maybe a better question than when will this happen and what will it look like is, how does knowing what this passage says 
Help me to stay faithful to Jesus and be a person of love, joy, and peace today. How does knowing this help me stay faithful to Jesus today? How does knowing this help me be a person of love and joy and peace today? Like that's why God told us about this millennium, so we can love him and trust him and obey him more today. But of course, the way we answer the the when and what will it look like question shapes our understanding of how it helps us to live well today. So we have to discuss that a little bit. And I personally lean towards the amillennial view. Again, if you hold a different one than me, that's fine. If you want to talk to me later and tell me why you're right and I'm wrong, I'd love to talk with you. If you have questions for the Q&A time after the sermon about this, send them to Colin and he can ask them to me and I'm happy to discuss them then. But I'll tell you why I hold this view. And the main reason is that during Jesus' life on earth, Jesus talked about how Satan was already bound through his ministry. Did you know that? In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus, he's casting out demons, and the religious leaders come and they say, you cast out demons by the power of demons. And Jesus says, of course not. A house divided against itself can't stand. And then in Matthew 12, 29, he says, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now, based on the context of Matthew 12, the strong man here is obviously Satan. And plundering his goods is Jesus casting out demons or reclaiming what used to belong to Satan. And the word for binding in Matthew 12, 29, where he talks about Satan being bound, is the exact same word as Revelation chapter 20, verse 2, where it talks about Satan being bound for a thousand years. So on some level, Satan was already bound during Jesus' life on earth. And if Satan was already bound during Jesus' ministry on earth, it's natural to expect that this binding continues today, especially when we see how Jesus' victory on the cross actually further, it is the ultimate victory over Satan and his forces. And maybe you're thinking, but Eric, how can Satan's forces be so powerfully at work today if Satan is bound? And that's a great question. And the answer is that Satan is not bound in every way. He's held back and restrained in a specific way for a specific purpose. I mean, even during Jesus' ministry, you see in Matthew 12, Jesus says Satan's been bound. And then a few chapters later, Satan comes into Judas's heart and gets him to sell Jesus to the authorities. Like Satan being bound doesn't mean he's totally out of the picture, incapable of doing anything. It means his power is severely limited for a specific purpose. And in Revelation chapter 20, verse 3, we see the reason that Satan is bound. It says he is bound so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. So think about it like this. In the Old Testament, salvation was almost exclusively limited to the Jews. There were occasionally foreigners who came in and trusted in Jesus, but those were rare individuals who connected with God through the Jewish people. But by and large, the other nations were trapped in spiritual darkness during that time. And that kept them from believing the good news about the God of Israel. Satan somehow had this power where he deceived these nations. He kept them trapped in darkness so that they couldn't find salvation through God. But now, since Jesus has come, what's happening? The good news of Jesus is spreading throughout the world. I mean, we saw in Revelation chapter 7, this crowd of people from every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages worshiping God before the throne. Because Satan is bound, 
The gospel is able to go forth into the world and people from all nations are experiencing salvation today, right now. But as we said, Satan, he's still doing what he can to oppose it. It's just that what he can do is limited. He can't darken their hearts to, to keep them from understanding and believing the gospel, but he can attack us physically. He, he can make life difficult for us. One pastor compares Satan during this time to a mob boss in prison. You know, if you have a mob boss in prison, they still work from the inside with their people to try and run the operation, but they're locked up. And so their power is limited. And that's what Satan is like during this time. He's locked up in prison, still trying to do everything he can from inside there. And yet it's limited. And in the meantime, God's word is spreading throughout the world. God's people are reigning with him in heaven. And the nations that used to belong to Satan are being plundered and won for Jesus. Isn't this a wonderful time to be alive? Like I realize COVID is tough. But God is defeating Satan through you and me. Isn't that awesome? God is making sure that we as his people have success as we seek to live faithfully to him. How great is that? Now, what does that mean for us today? Well, again, it means that we can live with hope because Jesus is on the throne. God's plans and purposes are being fulfilled and Satan is powerless to stop it. But doesn't that make you excited to go out and tell people about Jesus and do part of, and be part of what he's doing in the world? And so how do we live today if that's true? Well, we boldly share the gospel when we get opportunities. We plunder the strong man's house. We pray for God to give us open doors to share about him with our friends and families and neighbors. And, you know, maybe that seems trivial to you. Maybe it's like, oh, come on, Eric. There's this great cosmic war and you're just saying to pray for my friends and family and neighbors. But that's exactly where this war is fought. There is power, spiritual power in us praying for people and sharing our faith with them. And this season especially is one where God can use us so powerfully. Like for Christians who know that God is in control, COVID is still a really hard time. For a world around us who doesn't have the security of knowing God's on the throne. Man, this season is forcing so many people to ask lots of questions about hope security, meaning, purpose. If we're praying and we're keeping our eyes open for opportunity, there are open doors for us to share and speak with people about the hope available in Jesus right now because of the difficulty of the time that we're in the middle of. So we pray for our friends and family and classmates and coworkers. Pray that God would give us open doors to share with them about why we still have hope during this time. And then when they ask us, why are you so hopeful? Don't you realize things suck right now? We can honestly answer and tell them, it's Jesus. I have hope because I know Jesus is on the throne. And I know that he's working for good. And I know that in the end, he wins. If Satan is down so that the spread of the gospel can be successful, then it's so important for us to be spreading the gospel right now. So that's our second scene in this passage, Millennium. And our third scene is a war. And I realize at first glance, it actually looks like there's two different wars in this passage. One at the end of chapter 19, where the beast and his followers come fight against Jesus. And then one in the middle of chapter 20, where Satan and his followers come fight with Jesus. But I think what's going on here is that they're actually the same war, just shown from different perspectives. 
You remember, this is something John does a lot in Revelation. He shows us the same thing again and again from different perspectives. So we can see different implications and angles on what's happening in that scene. Now, where do I get that this is happening? Well, first, both of these scenes draw on imagery from the same Old Testament passage in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, which that passage is talking about one battle, not two. So it makes sense that if both of these are based on that battle, both of these are talking about the same battle in the future. Second, we can't see this in English because the translators left it out. But in the Greek, it refers in both passages to the battle, not a battle, which is most likely a reference to a battle that Zechariah told about at the end of time in the Old Testament. And so, again, both of these are most likely referring to that same battle in the book of Zechariah, which makes it likely that they're referring to the same battle in real life, which means the battle scene in chapter 19 and the battle scene in chapter 20 are the same battle, just from different angles, which is why we're looking at them together. But if it is the same battle, why split it up? Why tell about it in separate parts? Which again, brings us back to the question, what is God doing in this battle? Through this battle, God is bringing justice to a broken world. He's conquering the enemies who have set themselves against the blessing he wants to bring to this world. He's, we saw somewhere else in Revelation, it referred to this as destroying the destroyers of the earth. For the world to become the place of blessing that God wants it to be, anyone who opposes that blessing must be taken out of the picture. And we see this victory in chapter 19 from one angle. And then in chapter 20, we have evil's ultimate champion, Satan, who's given one more chance for this last epic showdown of the, the strongest force of evil against God. Evil has one more chance to do its worst. It's been beaten down, but now it has a chance to rise from the ashes and, and finally, once and for all, conquer God and overthrow the good in the world. And just like all his allies before, Satan is completely powerless to overcome Jesus. Jesus defeats all his enemies so he can bring blessing on the earth. But if you look closely at this battle scene, it's just a weird battle scene in so many ways. Like first, look what Jesus is wearing on his way to the battle. You see this in chapter 19, verse 13. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Now, why is that weird? Blood happens in battles, of course, right? You kill your enemies, their blood gets all over you. That's normal. But there's blood on Jesus' clothes before the battle even begins. Why is that? It's because the blood isn't the blood of Jesus' enemies. The blood is his own blood. Yes, the battle involves Jesus conquering his enemies, but at the ultimate level, this future battle between God and the forces of evil was actually won 2,000 years ago on the cross through the blood of Jesus that was poured out for us. The cross has once and for all sealed the defeat of Satan and all his forces, which is why Jesus is already covered in blood as he rides into the battle, because his own blood has already purchased the victory and won the war. Second, did you notice that the armies of heaven, that's, that's Christians, ride into the battle with Jesus? And there are two really interesting things there. First, we're there, but Jesus does all the fighting. Like as part of the army, we get to share in credit for the victory, but Jesus does all the work to win it. Isn't that such an awesome picture of the gospel? Jesus does all the work, we get the credit and the benefits. 
And then the second thing that's really interesting here is look what we wear into this battle. In verse 14, fine linen, white and pure. I don't know about you. If I'm going into battle, I want armor, not a, a linen robe, right? So why would we choose this strange outfit to go into battle in? Well, where have we seen fine linen that's pure and bright before in this passage? It's our wedding dress from the marriage of the Lamb. We literally ride into battle wearing our wedding outfit. Now, why would we do that? Well, on one level, it's because Jesus is the one fighting, not us, so we don't actually need armor. But on another level, it's because the love of God and the covenant faithfulness of God and the grace of God that we celebrate in the marriage supper is the same love of God and covenant faithfulness of God and grace of God that's being shown to us when God once and for all defeats the enemies who want to harm and destroy us. We're celebrating the same realities of God's love for us and his work for us in both scenes. We're just seeing them from different perspectives, which is why we're wearing the exact same outfit in both scenes. Because in both scenes, the wedding and the war, God is guarding us and protecting us and keeping us safe and showing us his love forever. So that's the second weird thing about this passage. The third weird thing about this battle happens in, in chapter 20. We see Satan, he summons all the nations of the earth to come and do battle, and they march in a huge crowd to attack the forces of God, and then there's not even a battle. Did you see that? Before they can even attack, fire just falls from heaven and they're done. Like this was never a fair fight. Satan and his forces never had a chance. But their evil and rebellion against God blinded them to the reality of their situation and made them act in ways that led to their destruction, which again is the same pattern we've seen throughout Revelation. When you reject God, when you rebel against him, it blinds you and leads you in destructive choices. And so if we're followers of Jesus, we don't need to question whether Jesus will win the victory on the end. His victory is secure. It's not even a fight. And so what does that mean for us today? Well, it means that we can live as conquerors or overcomers today. We've been saying all along, the goal of Revelation is to help us live as overcomers, to make us into people who remain faithful to Jesus no matter what we face in life. And if you want motivation to live for Jesus today, what greater motivation can there be than the fact that Jesus is the true conqueror who wins the battle over all the forces of evil and death and Satan in the end, and that his victory is your victory? Like, I know it's, it's scary to tell our friends at school about Jesus. It's scary to think about how we might get teased or made fun of by our friends if they know that we're actually a Christian. But if Jesus wins the battle and we're on his side, what do we have to be afraid of? And I know it's scary to, to be in close enough relationships with other Christians where people actually know the real us and they know our struggles and they know where we fail. It's so much easier to, to curate the image we put forward to everyone else and seem all shiny and great and put together and like, we don't actually need grace. But by being in real relationships and letting the real us be seen by everyone around us, we, we tangibly demonstrate our belief that Jesus really can deal with everything that's broken in us and make us right once and for all. Living in a way that's obedient to how God calls us to live today makes his victory our victory. 
It lets us join him in bringing people from Satan's side to God's side. It lets us join him in rooting out the remaining strongholds of evil in our own hearts so that we can be people who are totally aligned with him and, and truly becoming the people that he wants us to be. Because Jesus wins the battle, we can be faithful to him today, no matter what it costs us. So church, when our service ends today, if you log on to the SCMP's website, I highly doubt that things will magically be better and happier in our city right now. It may actually be worse. I mean, it seems like we're still on the upswing of infection levels and things are probably going to get worse before they get better in this fifth wave. But the whole point of today's passage that we've been looking at is that no matter how tough things get in the world around us, we can live with hope because we know who's on the throne. And we know how the story ends. It doesn't end with a funeral. It ends with a wedding, with celebration, with joy. It ends with Jesus and his people ruling and reigning forever. And it ends with all Jesus' enemies conquered and defeated once and for all so that God's people can live in safety and security for eternity. And that's true no matter what the news says about what's happening today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that you love us and that you care for us and that you are committed to us no matter what. We thank you that no matter what's happening in the world today and in the news, that we can rely on you because you're faithful and you're good. I pray that you would help us to not just be people who know that in our heads, but who feel that truth in our hearts, who are drawn to you each day because we know that you alone are the source of life. Make us the people that you want us to be, people who are filled with love and joy and peace, even in tough times. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, quick reminder, if you have questions about anything we discussed in the sermon, you can send them to Colin through Zoom chat. And we'll give you a few seconds to do that, and then we'll have Colin jump in, and he will lead our Q&A discussion. All right, good morning, everyone. Just... Thanks for the message this morning, Eric. I, I do find it so encouraging that we're on the right side. <laughs> it's nice to have the ending, despite what's all going on in the world at the moment. All right, there's, about, there's uh, two messages that I have at the moment. Sure. We can start with those, and then if people send in more as we're discussing, then we can keep going with those. Okay. The first one is, uh, who is the lamb in the reading? Uh, yeah. So uh, throughout Revelation, the lamb is Jesus. Um, so we saw that in chapter 5. Um, in chapters 4 and 5, there's a scene before God's throne where... Um, people are worshiping God, and then God has this, this scroll that's his plan for history and how it's going to unfold. And they're asking who is worthy to open this scroll. And John is distraught because no one's found worthy to open it. 
And then an angel comes and tells him, look, the lion of the tribe of Ju Judah, the root of Jesse has, has conquered and he's worthy to open the scroll. And John turns and looks and where he expects to see this lion, he actually sees a lamb that looks like it's been slain. And that lion who is a lamb is Jesus, the conqueror, but the one who conquers through dying for us. And so throughout the book of Revelation, anytime we see the lamb, uh, that's a reference to Jesus and um, the fact that he died as a sacrifice for us. And so okay. the, the imagery yep. is Jesus is the husband and the church is the bride and they're married and united for eternity. All right. Thanks for that. And uh, just another one there. Uh, what would lead people to take each of the different views um, for the millennial stuff that we talked about today? Sure. Yeah. Um, so we, we said there's three views. There's premillennial where Jesus comes back and then uh, the millennium happens after that. And then there's, so, so that view would be taken Basically, if you're, if you're trying to read Revelation super, super literally, um, if you're ignoring the symbolism and the imagery and the, the repetition and recapitulation and just sort of reading it chronologically as like what happens in chapter four must happen before chapter six, must happen before chapter eight, must happen before chapter 12, uh, we see in chapter 19, Jesus comes back. And then this comes after that. And so this thousand years must happen after Jesus has already come back. So that would be the premillennial view is just reading straight through chronologically. Um, the postmillennial view, um, I, I think a lot of people who adopted, adopted that view took it more based on experience of how they saw and experienced the world. Um, so for example, uh, one famous post-millennialist was a guy named Jonathan Edwards. Um, and Jonathan Edwards, great theologian. I would disagree with him on this point. But basically, he was a preacher in the U.S. back in the 1700s. And he was part of what was called the First Great Awakening. And so what happened is Jonathan Edwards and these other preachers would go around and preach different places. And just thousands and thousands of people were becoming Christians. And they sort of started to get this idea that maybe this, this new land that we found, America, is where God's setting up his millennial kingdom. Like, you know, you look at the response to the gospel that's happening here and now, like we've never seen anything like this in history. Maybe this is the start of the millennium. Maybe all of the persecution the church suffered in, in Europe back in the previous hundreds of years is finally over and God's bringing his blessing to the world. Um, and I think seeing how history has played out since then, I would have some serious questions and doubts about that interpretation. Um, but I, I can definitely see how someone like Jonathan Edwards came to that conclusion based on his experience of, of seeing God work in the world during his lifetime. Uh, and then the third view um, is what I explained today, sort of seeing the connections between the war in Revelation 19 and 20 being the same thing, which means you're probably rewinding in the period leading up to that, seeing that Satan's already been bound through the ministry of Jesus on earth. And so seeing that as happening now, rather than something still to come in the future. 
Okay, and and your personal view is leaning towards the a millennial view, right? The third yes. One. Okay, but if you disagree okay. with me, that's okay. In the end, <laughs> God wins either way. <laughs> exactly. Um, there's no other chat questions. Oh no, here we go. Um, there is a few now. Okay. So God exists outside time. Mm -hmm. Um. Did he see this vision seeing the future? Or I'm just trying to, all of this has happened already in God's point of view and we're just living through it. So I guess it's about, um, yeah, God exists outside time. So he sees all times at once, I guess. And mm -hmm. yeah, I'm not sure how to make a question of that actually. <laughs> Um, all right, another, maybe I'll just come back to that in a minute. Uh, another question, if, if Jesus is the lamb, what would uh, someone who is still in the Jewish faith say about that? Um, Interpret that, um, that prophecy or way of thinking. Yeah, um, well, I mean, so Jewish people generally don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Um, they're still waiting for another Messiah to come. Um, and so I think they would probably just disagree with it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there are people who interpret Revelation seeing Israel throughout Revelation as, like any time Revelation references Israel, as literally the, the nation and ethnic group of Israel. Um, I personally think that Revelation is is talking about the church as the true Israel of God. And I've tried to point out a few places throughout revelation where I've seen that happening. Um, mm. So, yeah, I don't, I don't think that Jewish people would probably be too bothered by this because they don't accept this as part of the real Bible anyway, would be my guess. That's <laughs> yep. Okay. And getting back to that question about God living outside of time and uh, John seeing the vision, is there any evidence uh, that you can see that John, as he was seeing the vision, thought that it was coming in the future or whether it was happening now? Uh, yeah, so I, I think if you, well, I mean, if you look at the start of the book, he, he talks about how it's a letter to these seven churches um, and how it is something that's supposed to, he, he constantly comes back to this idea of, these churches living in a way that that is as conquerors or overcomers is it's that word nikao we looked about looked at in our first week in revelation uh, the nike overcome conquer defeat and so the whole book is written to to help those churches and future churches live in this way of overcoming and conquering and so the natural expectation would be that the things that he's talking about here would be things that those churches would see happening by and large in their own days. Um, but it's also things that are going to continue forward. Um, we've talked about the idea of suffering in the last days being like birth pains. And when a woman's in labor, the birth pains are the same type of pain just happening over and over and over again, just getting more frequent, getting more intense getting like lasting longer each time that they come but if but what that means is that if these things were happening during that time when john was writing 
they should still be continuing through our day. And so they were happening then, but John also saw them continuing into the future. And I think with something like uh, the, the final victory of Jesus over Satan, that's obviously something that has to be coming in the future from John's perspective, because they're still suffering through the attacks of Satan during that time. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for that. Uh, and there's just a question there about, um, I, I guess, talking about um, the, the language that he uses as far as uh, the imagery and stuff. And, and just would like to understand more on why there's no, in your millennial view, no chronicle order in, in the events as they happen, as like there's two, the two battles described twice. And, yeah, so I mean, so something that we've talked about in our study is that when we look at the different series of judgments, like the seals and the bowls and the trumpets, um, each of them seems to lead up to the seventh one being the return of Jesus. And then we rewind um, and we go back to like John's day and age. Uh, and so throughout Revelation, we see we build up to like the second coming of Jesus and then we rewind. A classic example of this is in Revelation chapter 11, where uh, we get to the seventh trumpet there. And then it says, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was and is for you. And then no more is to come because he's already come back for you've taken your great power and begun to reign. And we see God, like Jesus has returned, God's reigning on the throne. And then chapter 12, we rewind to Christmas and the birth of Jesus on earth. And so throughout Revelation, there's this pattern happening where we build up to the return of Jesus and we could end the book right there. And then rather than ending the book there, we rewind. And so I would see, personally, I would see that same pattern happening when we get to the end of chapter 19, we've built up like, this last battle has just been fought. Jesus is here. He's just come back on this white horse. And just like we've been doing throughout the book, we rewind and go back to Satan being bound, which we saw happen during the ministry of Jesus on earth. And once one final time, we build up to when Jesus comes back. And then this time, we finally continue the story forward to what will it be like after that moment, which is what we're going to look yeah. at next week, is that, that awesome scene of the new heavens and new earth and us just being with God in glory forever. Okay. Awesome. Thanks for that. And thank you for everyone sending in your questions. Yeah. Thanks guys. And